everyone, and welcome to His Health, the show where we'll be tackling the health issues that are most important to men. I'm your host, Rick Malambri, and we're going inside the topics that men of all ages need to know and taking you out of the comfort zone when it comes to those health issues that men don't normally like to discuss. So let's get started. Today, we have back with us Dr. James Kwan. Dr. Kwan is a urologist with the Swedish Medical Center in Seattle, Washington, and he's board certified with the American Board of Urology and a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of Canada. He also has a practice focused on men's health and male sexual dysfunction. The His Health Podcast is brought to you in partnership from Providence and Boston Scientific, and today we're discussing the important topic of prostate cancer and the facts that you and the men in your life need to know. Now remember everyone, many of our questions come from our listeners on social media, and we can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. Before we start today, I'd like our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Okay, so let's get started by welcoming back Dr. James Kwan. Well, Dr. Kwan, you've become quite the resident on this show. But for those who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, well, I am. I have been a regular and I'm happy to be back. Uh, as I've said before, I'm a urologist at Swedish Medical Center in Seattle. And um, my practice is a mixture of general urology. And then I have a focus in men's health, specifically male sexual dysfunction. And um, I've been here for about 15 years. Wonderful. Now, today we have quite a big one, prostate cancer. What is it, how to treat it, and more? But why don't we start with the basics here in case our listeners aren't too familiar. Can you explain to us exactly what the prostate is, where it is, and what purpose does it serve in a man's body? Sure. You know, the prostate is an organ that only men have. And the normal size is about the size of a walnut, and it sits below the bladder. Um, the urethra is the tube that drains urine, and it passes through the prostate from the bladder to the tip of the penis. And, and then sitting behind the prostate, this walnut, are two structures. And I say that they look like rabbit ears, and they're called seminal vesicles. And this is where sperm are stored. And, and so they are then connected to the vas deferens, which runs from the prostate through the pelvis down to the testicles. Um, and the best way for us just to give you a sense of where it is, is to examine and feel the prostate is by doing a rectal exam. So it's, it's just in front of the rectum. So below the bladder in front of the rectum. Um, the main function of the prostate is reproduction and it's production of a large component of the fluid that makes up semen. Semen is the fluid that we release during orgasm. Um, and, and it's this fluid that carries the sperm, which are produced in the testicles and then stored in the seminal vesicles. And so other than reproductive function, um, the prostate doesn't really serve any other vital functions. Gotcha. So prostate cancer is the second most common cancer among men. Is that right? Yes. Why is this cancer so common? Is it considered a pretty aggressive cancer? It is. Um, yes. And, and. You know, one in six men will get prostate cancer. And so that uh, represents um, the most common cancer in American men after skin cancer. So, so it is the second most common cancer. And the estimate by the American Cancer Society is that in 
2021, roughly 250,000 cases, new cases of prostate cancer will be diagnosed and, and about 34,000 deaths from prostate cancer will happen. And so it, it represents the second leading cause of death in men after lung cancer. Wow. Um, in general, prostate cancer is not as aggressive as many other types of cancer. Um, and in fact, most men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer will die of something else, um, even if their cancer has spread. It's important to understand, though, that this is not to say that aggressive forms of prostate cancer don't exist because they do. It's more to say that prostate cancer um, has a large representation of lower grade and slower growing cancers. And it also speaks to the fact that even when it's aggressive, we can commonly manage and control the disease for many years before it leads to the complications we expect to see with advanced cancers or death. Um, and so I, I never want people to think that all prostate cancers are slow growing. Many of them are, but it's important that we know that still some men will have moderate or highly aggressive disease and they require treatment. Now, are there different types of prostate cancer? And if so, are some of them more serious or common than others? You know, the names we give for different cancers are based on the type of cells uh, from which the cancer develops. And, and when we think of the prostate, we think of it as the prostate gland as a whole. And microscopically, it's composed of small microscopic glands, which produce the semen we discussed. Um, the bulk of the prostate gland is these, these glandular cells. And so we call it an adenocarcinoma when a glandular cell becomes cancer. And when we're talking about prostate cancer, by and large, what we're referring to is adenocarcinoma of the prostate, which represents almost all, if not most, prostate cancers. That said, there are other non-gland cells in the prostate that can become cancerous and names might be small cell, neuroendocrine tumors, transitional cell carcinomas, which are like bladder cancers or sarcomas are examples. Um, how these get treated can be vastly different compared to the adenocarcinoma. But I would say that for the sake of our discussion today, we'll focus on adenocarcinoma because essentially this is the most common type okay. that we see. I guess one of the biggest questions in most men's minds might be, is it curable? And with that, what is the cure rate or survivor rate for prostate cancer? You know, when the diagnosis of prostate cancer is made early, and that means the cancer is contained within the prostate and it hasn't spread to lymph nodes, the bones, or elsewhere in the body, cure is, is commonly possible with treatment focused just on the prostate. And, and I would say that this is the scenario that the majority of men will be in, meaning their cancer is commonly detected early enough and it is likely confined to the prostate. Even though we're never sure, we'll often uh, proceed with treatment with the intent to cure in these, these men, understanding that not all men will be cured by treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, the rate of cure depends on the extent of the disease. And, and, we commonly look at a five-year survival rate. And for men with local disease, that is 100%, meaning five years after diagnosis, they're still alive. 
Mm-hmm. If if a man is diagnosed with advanced disease, meaning it's spread to the bones or outside of the pelvis, that number is much more uh, grim at 30%, meaning 70% of men five years from diagnosis will have died in spite of therapy. If we take all of those together, overall, the survival rate for five years is about 97 to 98%. So pretty good odds all in all. Yeah. Can you explain how prostate cancer is generally diagnosed? Like, are there screenings or are there symptoms that we need to be on the lookout for? And what should a man get tested or screened for? You know, this has been a point of controversy um, over the last decade or so, but all urologists feel quite strongly that screening a man for prostate cancer is important. And, and it's important to understand that ultimately the diagnosis of prostate cancer is made by sampling the tissue called a biopsy. Mm-hmm. And, and no other test that we do, whether it's a blood test, a urine test, or a physical exam test, will actually diagnose cancer. They're just indicators of the risk a man might have of us finding cancer if we do a biopsy. Um, It's uncommon for men to have prostate cancer-related symptoms in this day and age because most of the cancers, as I alluded to, are diagnosed fairly early. And, And, you know, we recently talked about prostate enlargement and we've alluded to prostate infection. The urinary symptoms that men might complain about are more commonly related to those types of diagnoses. In general, the current recommendation uh, is that men begin uh, discussion about screening at age 55 with their primary care doctor or urologist. And this process is called shared decision-making. And it it really is a discussion ring where we weigh the risks and benefits of screening. Um, recognizing that there are some shortcomings to the screening process. Uh, the, the workup for screening usually involves two important things, a, a digital exam or a finger exam of the prostate, and then a blood test called PSA, which stands for prostate-specific antigen. This is a protein that only the, the, the prostate makes. Where the controversy comes in is we've often called this a screening test for prostate cancer. Um, which I think gives it too much credit. And I like to think of it more as either a measurement of the level of prostate activity or as a screening test for prostate biopsy. Just like when your primary doctor tests for blood that you can't see in the stool, mm-hmm. if he finds he or she finds it, they may recommend uh, a colonoscopy. If, if the parameters that we see regarding prostate cancer are concerning enough, we then may recommend a biopsy. The reason for this is is that it's not only prostate cancer that causes the PSA to go up. Infection and prostate enlargement make the prostate more active, and so that can produce more PSA. All of that said, a rising or an elevated PSA is still an indicator of potential prostate cancer. And so if we take the PSA, maybe this imperfect test, but we put it in context with things like family history, the presence or absence of symptoms, how big or what the prostate feels like on exam, how has the PSA changed over time? It actually becomes a very good test in helping us identify men who may benefit from having a biopsy. And, and kind of a rough cutoff would be a man in his 50s or 60s should generally expect his PSA to be less than four. And anything above that, I think, warrants a discussion um, about his risk of prostate cancer. 
and then I will add that if 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 a man is African American heritage or uh, any man has a brother or father who has prostate cancer, their screening should actually begin in their 40s. Their risk of prostate cancer is double, meaning they would have a one in three risk in their lifetime of developing prostate cancer. And that often occurs at younger ages. Mm -hmm. Now, what type of doctor generally makes the diagnosis or and treats the prostate cancer? Is it a urologist like you or maybe an oncologist? Yeah, as we discussed in other episodes about screening, um, screening is usually going to start in the primary care doctor's office. And then they'll often, men will be referred if there's a change in the PSA or an abnormal prostate exam. And then they come to see us as urologists. Urologists, by and large, make the diagnosis. And we actually do the initial testing after and often have the discussion about how prostate cancer should be treated. Um, and we're usually the first people that, that will see a man after they've seen their primary care. Involving the oncologist depends on the treatment or the stage of the disease, but, but usually this is something that happens after the diagnosis is made. Okay. Now I've been reading that some of the symptoms of late stage prostate cancer are also found in other health issues. So is prostate cancer easily missed or is it generally in the first round of testing when you see these symptoms as a doctor? You know, I think it's important to understand a bit of the history. A generation of urologists ago, most urologists saw advanced prostate cancer because we didn't have PSA and we didn't have good screening. And, and those men would present with symptoms of advanced disease like bone pain or kidney failure, not being able to urinate or move their bowels, swelling in their legs. And in some cases, if it compressed the spinal cord, they may even become paralyzed. Um, Early screening, however, has essentially made this a very rare occurrence. Even though we still see some men who present with advanced disease, um, most of the time we're making the diagnosis based on the change in PSA, their risk factors like family history or an abnormal prostate exam. And most of those men won't have any of the symptoms. Once we've made the decision to do the biopsy, um, 92% of cancers are found uh, using the prostate biopsy, meaning a biopsy result that shows no cancer has only an 8% chance of missing a cancer that was there. So biopsy is very effective in the first round of finding the cancers that are there. If a man has complications or symptoms of advanced cancer, um, the diagnosis is fairly easy to make. Um, and it's usually based on a PSA, which can often be in the hundreds, you know, and when we, we think that a man's PSA should usually be under four, a PSA of two or 300 is almost diagnostic of prostate cancer. And so it's easy to make in advanced cases. Hmm. Do we have any idea what causes prostate cancer? And you spoke a little bit about this before on the father or brother possibly having prostate cancer before. Um, could there be also a genetic factor involved? Well, in most cases, there's not usually a single cause of cancers, prostate cancer as well. Um, and it's usually a combination of factors, things like we refer to as cofactors. And for prostate, these might be environmental, hormonal. They may relate to lifestyle, family history, as you've suggested. And, and there may be genetic factors at play. Um, prostate cancer is the most prevalent in North America. And we think that this might be related to some of our lifestyle factors, more specifically dietary factors. Yeah. Um, 
cancer develops when there are genetic changes in a cell. And if you layer enough of these, the result of this is that a cancer, a cell can divide uncontrolled without the normal suppression or signals to turn it off. And, and, and if you get enough genetic mutations in that way, or maybe the genes that normally cause uh, repair of abnormal cells, um, those become mutated and, and, and it perpetuates the abnormal cells to grow. Um, that's probably what's happening at a genetic level. In terms of specific genes, in recent years, there's been focus on the breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and 2, which we know increase a woman's risk of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. um, there is some suggestion that this may actually increase a man's risk of prostate cancer as well. And then there is uh, some polyp syndromes. People maybe who have family histories of colon cancer related to a condition called Lynch syndrome may have a higher risk of prostate cancer as well. Very interesting. We'll be back with more on prostate cancer right after this short break. Going to the bathroom every half hour isn't normal, which could be a sign of an enlarged prostate or BPH, and it's not something you need to live with. Resume water vapor therapy treats the cause of your BPH so you can get back to your life. This short in-office treatment shrinks your prostate, providing relief from your BPH symptoms. No surgery, no drugs. To learn more about the risks and benefits of Resume Therapy, visit Resume.com. That's R-E-Z-U-M.com. Or ask your urologist. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit BostonScientific.com. been waiting for the tides to change for the waves to send you my way i see you darling but you pixelate it gets hard to take these days but when
Cause when I'm in a room with you That missing piece is found His health is back with our guest, Dr. Kwan, and we're discussing everything men need to know about prostate cancer. We've now touched on a few possible causes. What could be some common risk factors we know of that might make a man more susceptible to getting prostate cancer? Yeah, you know, as mentioned, African-American men are at a greater risk, as are men with, with a brother or a father with prostate cancer. There may be some risk uh, as a result of exposure to things like radiation or chemicals. These are things that cause DNA damage, um, as we've just mentioned. And, and one example of this is possibly Agent Orange that was used in the Vietnam conflict, mm. um, that there may be an association with the development of prostate cancer in those men. Um, further research is needed, but uh, another hypothesis is that um, chronic inflammation um, may over time affect the, the DNA and cause damage and perhaps might lead to the development of prostate cancer. You know, it's my understanding that with most, like with most cancers, there's not much we can do to actually prevent getting prostate cancer and some risk factors we can't do anything about. But are there things that we can do or change about our lifestyle that might help lower that risk? Yeah, I agree. Prevention is usually a missed opportunity. And, and if we're really going to prevent something like prostate cancer, we probably need to start in adolescence to be effective at all. Um, that said, I guess it's never too late to start. Um, obesity, diets that are high in saturated fats or specifically diets that are high in dairy, they may actually have a higher rate of more aggressive prostate cancers. And so, so there may be some room for adaptation there. Uh, the researchers who look at these types of, of interventions for prevention of prostate cancer mm -hmm. still come to us with the recommendation, which I make to men, and it's the recommendation to, to move forward with a heart-healthy lifestyle and, and, and diet. And that means a low saturated fat, low sugar, lean protein, adding a lot of fruits and vegetables. Um, because men are more likely to die of heart disease and cancer. And so it's important that we're addressing that aspect as well. Meanwhile, screening for a man's risk of prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. There's no solid data on supplements. Um, some of the drugs that we talked about in a previous episode that shrink a prostate can be used off-label and might actually reduce a man's risk of prostate cancer, although that's not what their initial intention is for. Okay. In doing my own research about this, I found a long list of treatments for this type of cancer. Can you tell us about the most common treatments and which ones you would try first? Yeah, you know, I, I often say that, you know, prostate, no matter what you do to it, will respond when there's cancer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so the list is long. Uh, active surveillance, or what we used to call watchful waiting, um, is something that we may discuss with men who have low risk cancer. And, and what this means is a slow growing cancer with a small amount of tumor seen on the biopsy and a very low PSA. And ultimately this is, you know, watching him without treating him. And, and by doing so, we can actually avoid the potential side effects related to treatment. This doesn't mean we send them away and never see these men again. In fact, we, we follow them with blood tests every three or six months and often with repeat biopsies uh, at various stages, and then even MRI is used in, in some of these men to follow. Um, so where appropriate, we'll consider active surveillance or watchful waiting. The mainstays of treatment for most men, even if they have low or moderate risk, and especially high risk prostate cancer, mm-hmm. will be a, an option between prostate removal or what's called prostatectomy, um, which is now usually done robotically with a minimally invasive approach versus uh, radiation therapy, which can take many forms, meaning we can put radioactive seeds in the prostate, we can deliver the the radiation from the outside in called external beam. And then there's other ways to generate the energy with, with protons. And so there's proton therapy. And then another type of radiation is called radio surgery or cyber knife. Um, And so often we're having a discussion um, between surgical or radiation therapy and and how we proceed should include a discussion of both options. It should also include a discussion of active surveillance if it's appropriate, meaning the man meets the sort of recommended criteria for that. Um, And it's also important to understand that some men might require both treatment, surgery and radiation to adequately control the disease. Um, but because both of them will control the disease roughly similar, we're often making the choice based on the size of the prostate, a patient preference, what their urinary symptoms are like before treatment, and then the side effects that are, are related to the treatment itself, like urinary or sexual side effects that can happen. Mm-hmm. If the cancer is more advanced, the scenarios we talked about where it's outside of the prostate in the lymph nodes or the bone, for example, right. um, will you often use uh, hormone therapy alone just to block the drugs? If the prostate cancer is just more advanced in the pelvis, this is the case where we might use a combination of surgery and radiation, maybe with some hormones. So, so not everybody gets the same approach, but a, a discussion of all the approaches I think is necessary to help a man make an informed decision. Um, at the time. All right. If a patient needs to have their prostate gland removed and the cancer is removed, what does that mean for them moving forward? What, what happens to a man who doesn't have a prostate? Well, I'll answer the last question first. Um, you know, after you remove the prostate, uh, men can still orgasm, but they won't ejaculate. Uh, the function was to produce semen and, and, and you remove that gland and there's no fluid there. And so, so that's sort of the obvious thing that happens. That said, that can also happen after radiation because radiation causes the gland to dry up, so to speak. Right. Um, when it comes to surgery, I think there's a few things men should think about. Um, surgery is not for everybody and not everyone is a surgical candidate, but 
when surgery is the right choice, I think it's very important to seek out the right surgeon. There is actually very good data that says higher volume surgeons with good outcomes are the surgeons for this operation that, that men should see. And, and what that relates to is how well they control or manage the cancer. And then what are the side effects related to, to treatment and, and what are their rates of success in preventing those side effects? You know, I'm very fortunate in my practice at Swedish that uh, we have a very established robotics program. In fact, we're one of the highest volume hospitals on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. and, and we have, you know, really one of the country's experts uh, working here doing robotic surgery and that thousands of prostatectomies have been performed here. And, and so I'm fortunate to have that resource. Um, a lot of people will travel for those types of resources as well um, because, because the experience of the surgeon matters. It's usually an overnight in hospital, but with COVID, a lot of care has changed and some people are having this done as an outpatient. When we remove the prostate, you know, we create a space between the bladder and the urethra. And so we have to sew that back to splint that so it repairs and heals without scar tissue. A catheter, which is a tube that drains the urine is placed for one or two weeks. Surprisingly, most men have very little pain or minimal pain related to this other than the irritation from the tube. Um, it's recommended that men don't uh, overexert themselves for about a month after surgery. When the catheter comes out, and this is, I think, where a lot of men, you know, start start worrying, but when the catheter comes out, all men are going to leak urine. You know, the mm -hmm. prostate was like a speed bump holding the urine back. And when we remove it, the speed bump is gone. And so the bladder squeezes and there's nothing holding it back. Men haven't had to think about keeping dry like mm -hmm. our female counterparts who've always had to do exercises called Kegel exercises to keep themselves dry. When a man has his prostate removed, we make strong recommendations to do those types of exercises. And, and with that, about 90% of men one year after surgery are completely dry, meaning they don't require pads because they're leaking. Mm -hmm. The other side effect that men worry about is erectile dysfunction. And, and, and really the only approach to prostate cancer that preserves erections is active surveillance. But, and that's the watchful waiting, but we know that not all men are good candidates for that. So when we're talking about erectile function, there are a few things that ultimately affect the outcome. A man with poor erections before treatment is not going to have better erections after treatment. And then when it is specifically regarding surgery, the nerves that stimulate erections sit on the surface of the prostate. And commonly those nerves can be peeled away called nerve sparing. And in some of those cases, roughly 75% of men will still get erections. If, if sparing those nerves risks leaving cancer cells behind, um, those nerves have to be removed. And so if one of those nerves is removed, 60% um, of men are going to be impotent. If both of those nerves are removed, 100% of men are going to be impotent. Um, but as we discussed on a previous episode, even in very severe cases of erectile dysfunction, we can restore that function. Mm -hmm. um, longer term, all men are going to be followed with regular PSA tests eventually annually for the rest of their life. To, to make sure that it remains undetectable and not measurable in the bloodstream. Um, because if it rose, that would be an indication that maybe the cancer had, had come back. 
Well, those aren't bad numbers at all. Yeah. Before we wrap things up, is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about prostate cancer that we haven't covered already? Well, I alluded a bit to it before. There, there's a lot of chatter on the internet and in the media about prostate cancer and how it doesn't need to be found. And it can't cause problems like death because it's slow growing. And, and what I want to say is that, well, on one hand, this is true. And most men die of something else. Um, approximately 60% of the cancers that we diagnosed, if we left them untreated, they would grow and spread and could cause problems. And so um, I, I want people just to think about that and, and also recognize that information matters. All of the tests like PSAs, MRIs, and other urine marker tests that we didn't talk about are really just indicators. And if we don't know what's actually happening, if we don't know if there is cancer there or not, and we don't know if it's a slow, medium, or fast-growing cancer, we're really going to be making theoretical decisions about our health. Um, and I don't think that that's always the best decision for us to be making just uh, in terms of, of things that are this serious. And, and, and at this moment, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think if there's a urologist that I know that wouldn't get themselves screened or recommend screening to a family member or friend. Right. Well, we just have a couple of social questions to go through. Jeff from Twitter asks, are there any changes in my diet I should make to lower my risk of prostate cancer? You know, as I said, a lot of those changes probably needed to happen in adolescence or in our 20s and 30s. And I don't know how old Jeff is, and maybe he's he's at the perfect stage of life to do that. Um, you know, we talked about saturated fat. We talked about diets that may be heavy in dairy. As, as things that may contribute to uh, higher risk or faster growing prostate cancers. Um, those might be things that, that could be addressed. Um, a number of studies were done, you know, with regards to supplements. Um, none of them have actually shown to be definitive in terms of preventing cancer. Things like vitamin E and selenium um, couldn't stand the test of a, a rigorous study. Some people will, will advocate for lycopene, which is found in tomatoes. Um, all of that said, I would reiterate that um, a lot of men, the most common cause of death for men is heart disease. Mm -hmm. and, and prostate cancer needs to be side by side in the discussion of heart disease. And so a heart healthy diet, as, I've, as I mentioned earlier, um, is probably the most important dietary change that any man can take. Yeah, absolutely. Leslie from Instagram asks, my husband was diagnosed with prostate cancer. He's in his early 50s, and the doctor recommended active surveillance. For now, because his tumor is small, it seems scary to just leave it untreated. Do you also recommend this to patients? I do, and I, I think it's important that we do recommend this to patients. I'm going to touch on a few things that I, I, I spoke about in uh, earlier. You know, historically, prostate cancer was seen at late stages. And then we got this test PSA that helped us diagnose men at early stages. And, and so the natural um, reaction for urologists was to treat all men. Because by treating all men, they believed that they would be preventing 
you know, spread of prostate cancer and death from prostate cancer. And, and, and probably for a couple of decades, most men who were diagnosed with prostate cancer underwent treatment like surgery or radiation. Um, somewhere in the middle of that, people started to say or ask the question, do all of these men really benefit from having treatment? And what I mean by that is if we find a low-grade cancer early and treat it, what are we actually preventing? And, and as people looked into the numbers and the history and then did studies looking at men moving forward, what we found is, is the men who have low-grade cancers, the very low-risk cancers, probably what, what Leslie is describing here for her husband, mm -hmm. where it is slow-growing, it's small, I suspect his PSA is low, what we found is, is early screening and diagnosis and then treating that man may in fact actually be over-treatment, meaning by doing that, we're not actually preventing any other problems like death or complications from prostate cancer, because that prostate cancer may never grow, may never become a problem. Mm -hmm. That's about a third of men. And so we understand that we're actually, we've actually over-treated prostate cancer um, for decades. It's important that we continue, that we offer active surveillance, but it's also important that we recognize for every 30% of men that can be on active surveillance, roughly 65, 70% of men have cancers that will grow and spread. And so the thing I think that is most important about active surveillance is that um, men meet the criteria of very low risk, very, very low volume disease, and that they are comfortable with the notion of not treating the cancer up front, and that they are also committed to the follow-up that's required. And that's the blood testing. That's the the additional uh, biopsies or maybe even MRIs, because if you're not committed to that, then active surveillance is the wrong thing. And the reason I say that is 30% of men within three or four years of diagnosis. And so Leslie's husband has about a 30% chance in the next three or four years of requiring treatment, maybe because his PSA rises above a certain level or on a repeat prostate biopsy, his cancer looks more aggressive than it was when it was first diagnosed. And if you're not committed to that follow-up and, and you're not committed to those screenings in the future, we don't know if the cancer has changed. And so, well, we used to call it watchful waiting and that's a term that makes sense to people. Mm -hmm. Active surveillance, meaning it's something that we actually have a plan to do is really what's required. Um, it's as intense as following a person after treatment because we really want to make sure that if the cancer is changing, that we're there ready to treat and change our approach um, when we have the first sign of that happening. Right. And so it's not for everybody because some people lay awake at night worried about their cancer. And so as a result of that, some men with low-grade cancers will receive treatment. And so in effect, we're still over-treating some men. But by and large, um, many of the men who I offer it to are, are very willing to do this. And I think it is partly because I have this discussion with them before we even diagnose their cancer. And I say, there is a chance we may find a cancer that we may not need to treat. And we may find a cancer that we need to treat. And so I think simply having that understanding 
before a man gets the message that he unfortunately has prostate cancer is actually, I think, part helpful in the process of understanding that it can be an option because because sort of the shock of getting that diagnosis sometimes takes us to to sort of the worst case scenario. And and sometimes our better reason um, causes us to make more drastic decisions. But but the real benefit of active surveillance is you may not need treatment. And by not having treatment, as long as the tumor doesn't grow, you're avoiding the side effects of treatment, like impotence or incontinence. Mm-hmm. And and that's the real benefit. Very insightful. Dr. Kwan, thank you again for coming on and laying out all this valuable knowledge for our listeners. It's always great chatting with you, and I look forward to doing it again soon. Likewise. Thank you. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Kwan for joining us today on His Health, our friends at Boston Scientific for sponsoring this show, and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to continuing the conversation on men's health with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on social media where we can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. Thank you for listening, and as always, be healthy.